0: All right, we'll just be coming out of election day and midterm season when this is published. Have you been keeping an eye, keeping all of the politics at arms length with your approach?
1: I keep a side eye on it. Yeah. I'm not immersed in it, but I think you have to keep, you know, some tabs on it just so you can you know, it moves so quickly. You got to keep some tabs on it.
0: I've been disillusioned by so much of the conversation surrounding politics and voting and and this democracy, but I think community really is what has kept me engaged at all. The sense of community that Mm. some uh, uh, candidates have been able to uh, create. It's an important thing as affirmed by our friends at the Schubert club. Since 1882 Schubert club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. I'll speak a little bit more to what the Schubert uh, Schubert club has going on here in a minute, but you know, it's again, it's that word community that really is driving me and my a continued engagement, as little as it is, <laughs> with the political system, because community really is all we have at the end of the day. If we're right. if we're talking about solidarity, if we're we're talking about initiative, community really does it. And you know, I'm very excited. About how Schubert Club sort of cultivates, just as they say in their mission, cultivates that community and creates opportunity and puts different people on. It just so happens that uh, Schubert Club, through their music museum mini uh, series, I've done one about what the bassoon is. You know, there are all sorts of those, Mm -hmm. and one of them uh, was recorded back in the spring, featuring. Our friend Maria Issa, a member of the Triloquy family, and our soon-to-be, at least where I live, our soon-to-be state representative. Uh following her campaign, collaborating with her, fostering a friendship, you know, connecting with her um, on the Buddhist front because she also chants mm. Namyoho Renge Kyo. Mm. It has, you know, brought in the human element. Of this whole conversation of who are we voting for and who's endorsed by a party and and all of those different things. When I go to the poll to vote for her tomorrow, you know, tomorrow as as we're recording this, I'm not just voting for the Democrat or the progressive or the person that I think I should vote for. I'm voting for an individual who I really believe in—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's incredible. And you know, not only you know f- through her activism and what she does for the community, but again, her music is incredible. She did a Schuber Club uh, Music Museum m- mini featuring uh, the conga and teaching us a little bit about bamba. I wanted to share just a little bit of her presentation as she's you know trying to get the kids in particular to understand the different sounds of the drum and how you can utilize it. Here's a little bit of this. Go in and. So try hitting the bass. (laughs) -bass. -bass. -bass.
1: some experience down in florida playing percussion said that your hands got beat up pretty good so has, has she got uh calloused hands from her percussion playing
0: i don't know if she has calloused hands but she plays the the drum well and i know what it takes to play the drum after after doing that so. one thing i will say is
1: very cool i've seen her videos uh you know at like celebrations after parties and things like that and she gets out there and dances, you know. She does and, it
0: all. She's an incredible singer, you know, of course, rapper. As we've talked I appre- about, yeah,
1: I appreciate that. It's not uh, let, let's just say it. It's not a stuffed shirt that you know is going to come up and say thank you and then leave.
0: And it's not a stuffed shirt that's going to be you know creating policy mm-hmm. and and helping mm-hmm. you know us make it here that. on the here on the state level. I don't know. Do you think the unhumanity? Of politics, and again by that I mean just the lack of true rapport and uh, knowledge and proximity of these individuals to communities. Do you think that is really what the issue is? If we can start to know who these people are, will will there be more faith in the the system, in, in voting, in results, all of that?
1: Maybe. I'm looking at it from a slightly different position than what you're talking about right now because with my family I'm having conversations where I'm trying to get them to Say okay. Now you hear this news story. Is that humane that you just heard? Is that being, you know, good mm-hmm. to uh, you know my my family or Christian people? And I and I have to ask them: Is does that follow what the scripture says or what your books say? You know, where's the humanity in in this in in what you just observed? I think
0: if we're just really going to be honest and and raw about it. There are fe- there are people who just don't care about the humanity of of other people. It, it seems like that is what has to be taught. That's what's said Or, and or feels, engaged, yeah.
1: And it feels like it's growing, right? The
0: the lack of, it of does. The humanity seeing each other's human everybody spirit. out for
1: themselves. Yeah, it does feel like that.
0: Okay, so if if that's really what we have to do, it's not about the candidates and knowing the candidates. It's about seeing each other as humans. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in your mind that can? help do that the door knocking isn't always going to be safe you know the people, so it's not about that so
1: the candidates and the people in power need to stop the hot rhetoric they need to calm people rather than stir them up and gin up stories that creates a narrative that isn't 100% accurate
0: It's not about rhetoric, it's not about messaging as much as it needs to be about dialogue. I think there's a lot of talking at people instead of Mm -hmm. talking with people.
1: And and show some leadership. Stand up there and and say, look, this isn't right, what we're doing, and we need to stop othering one another, and we can disagree, but this violence, man, is scary. We say that all the time we can disagree
0: and and still be friends or or I'm what not still be humane be or, or whatever <laughs> or or be cordial whatever mm-hmm. but there are just you know I guess where where my struggle comes in is that there are a number of things that I don't think it's acceptable to Believe so. If I, mm-hmm. if I, if we disagree, for example, on the importance of Black life or the fact that Black lives matter, mm-hmm. that's not just a okay. Well, we can agree to disagree. That's I get that. Where we're getting into values, but I guess again that circles back to seeing the human nature, just the humanness of the next person. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, you know how how can how can things move forward? Where well, I, I guess I'm going to get a little bit into that in the triloquy today, in the, in the fourth movement. Uh, but at the end of it all, it's about dialogue. Again, not just talking at each other, but really working hard to understand different perspectives, perspectives that are not yours, and what comes from those perspectives, whether it be ways of life, Political beliefs, the way that you teach and engage your children, even the way you listen to music. It's Mm. that dialogue that we try to engage here so that we can see something in common and uh, move forward together. That's my... That's my spiel today. Should I should I run for office? Do do, do I sound (laughs) like I can please enough of the masses? With all your time. (laughs) They would dig up some skeletons about me and (laughs) (laughs) anyway, again, a little bit more of that of the fourth movement, but uh for now let's go ahead and jump in. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 173. Thank you so much for joining us. To returning listeners, we couldn't do it without you. Your support keeps this podcast afloat, and we are extremely grateful for your continued support. If this is your first time checking out the, the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music, the concept of classical music, and turns it on its head. We take stories, we take pieces of music, songs, orchestral compositions, anything that you can think of, and we contextualize it as classical music, sometimes American classical music or whatever culture it comes from, all the way to the end goal of decolonizing that phrase classical Classical music and creating a music ecosystem that genuinely reaches the ideals and perspectives of more people. If you want to check out more on the Triloquy podcast, listen to past opuses, contribute to the project. You can do all of that at our website, Triloquy, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on the 18th of this month of November, we have our song, Our Story, The New Generation of Black Voices. It's an evening. Celebrating the world's most well known arias, art songs, and spirituals, created and directed by composer, conductor, and multi genre musician Damien Sneed. You can find more information about that at the Schubert Club website, as well as their upcoming Kids Jam coming up on November 29th. It's themed around a journey through Afro Brazilian music with Ticket. To Brazil. It says here listen to and learn about the exciting and energetic music of Brazil. Create your own percussion instrument and play along with cello, guitar, flute, and more percussion. Again, all of that at Schubert.org. Huge thanks to all of our friends over there at Schubert Club. Elijah Daniel Smith uh, is coming in the third movement, part one of our conversation you know elijah daniel smith scott is one of those composers who i was talking a little bit of shit about and then of course when you meet them in person i'm like so now i'm (sighs) stammering So see, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> what was that but now, like? now, yeah. <laughs> that, that comes up in the interview. So I, okay, I, I forget if it's this week or it'll be next week, but uh, Elijah's coming up in the um, third movement. Uh, in the second movement, I'm bringing in uh, some Anita Baker. You're going to talk a little bit about Mimi Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned in the fourth movement, I'm going to call myself to the carpet a little bit. We're going to have uh, some of these cross-community conversations that uh, need to be had for us all to move forward. But before all of that, Movement one. Let's get into it. All right. Well, you offered an accidental this week that... I figured you would bring in because you're pretty good at keeping your ear to the ground. You already said that you're on Twitter, making sure that you 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 stay up to date with the slang yes. and the and the happenings. That's a part-time so, job. So so give it to us. What 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 accidental are you giving us this week?
1: From Rolling Stone, this gets a shark. The headline is: "This is black caviar of hip hop." Rick Ross turns up with an all-black orchestra. The luxurious sounds of Maybach music took over the Atlanta Symphony Hall as part of Red Bull's global symphonic series. Red Bull caught wind of them uh, through their, quote, Beethoven meets the 90s vibe show. Another show that I've not heard of. (laughs) (laughs) That that, that sounds interesting to you. I want to see what what they're talking about. Um, He says, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm me. He's tasked with translating an hour of Roger's discography into music for his orchestra. Rogers says the arrangements poured out of him. The, the, the show seemed lit. I don't think,
0: you know, if someone hears about uh, Rick Ross or any rapper with an orchestra, you know that it's gonna sell you know I've, I've had again i've had the pleasure of uh performing with the Illharmonic harmonic for many years uh we have nas who's been out here uh with orchestras for a long time those those shows always do well i know uh the rapper common is, mm-hmm. is uh doing a lot of work trying to get in front of more orchestras we have the 50th anniversary of hip-hop coming up uh, next year august 11th i think the date is hip-hop will turn 50 years old so you know i'm sure every orchestra that has a little taste of cultural competency will be figuring out how they can engage that and and not to say that this isn't uh, happening, the sort of hip hop orchestral music blend isn't happening. Um, you know, I want to shout out the uh, Wheeling Symphony Orchestra in Wheeling, West Virginia, suburb of uh, Pittsburgh. is in the Pittsburgh area. They uh, released a uh, they premiered a, a beatbox concerto this season, which mm. I thought was really cool. And you know, in in my work with ACO, we're working to see if we can figure out some collaborations to continue that uh, that that momentum. But you know, I, I again just to you know not to make the conversation negative or anything but when we start talking about you know why certain things don't happen or why things are a norm you know you can't take the racial element out of it we're talking about hip hop music for 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 goodness sake mm-hmm. and i do think that is you know an, an ingredient in a lot of folks aversion because they're thinking about their traditional audience and you know how, yeah. how the how yeah. the fur coats and the pearls aren't interested in in hearing any of that yeah but there is an audience for it. I think that is what's even more important. And this new audience or, or this newer audience should be engaged and, and should have things uh, programmed toward them, toward us, I should say. So I'm La- celebrating this.
1: Last week or the week before, you asked how much money I would pay to go to an opera. Yeah, and you said $100. Well, you know what? I looked, <laughs> I looked at some, some of the pricing structures. huh and after I bought, there was some of them that after I bought the ticket, I might have money for parking.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> or, so, or a glass of wine at intermission. I don't even there. know about that. I don't know about. I you know say because charge. it was up there the
1: eighty nine dollar range. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, my question would be, who would you want to see on stage in front of an orchestra? Because you know, we said speaker Geekers pointed out that Rick Ross is symphonic at yeah. at his core. So. Think about that. What artist do you think would sound good in front of an orchestra, and what would you pay to go sit and listen?
0: Well, I, I'm thinking about um, classical, so-called classical versus classic hip hop. So I think it would be cool to see an Eric B. and Rakim in front of an orchestra, or even going a little later, you know, Queen Latifah and these folks in front of an orchestra, and. It could be cool to see uh some of these uh luls run around here <laughs> in front of an orchestra. So I don't know. I, I think my point is just that the idea of it needs to be way more normalized. We talk about uh Pink Martini and how they bring that sort of, you know, show Caber- club cabaret. cabaret to the orchestra. We we talk about wow. movies and video games and the orchestra all the time. We're kind of talking about hip-hop and orchestras, it's still few and far between. And I I just hope that we can make it more of a, a normal concept so that
1: more of it is happening in the mainstream more often. I think it's an interesting distinction to make your willingness to put out some money if it's Black Noir and an artist that you want to hear versus X City Orchestra Presents, who at uh, little little lil? I mean, if or- if Orchestra Noir
0: is coming through Minnesota, or I'm somewhere where they're performing, I go. feel an obligation to support. I, I feel you know like I-, I I need to give, excuse me, everything I can to do what I can to just support this group. I don't need to reach deep into my pocket for a New York Philharmonic or even for a a Minnesota Orchestra because you know I'm not their core audience. They have a budget that right. is, is very good, larger than Triloquy's budget for sure. So I, 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 I think there's that aspect of it as well. It's not just about, I, I don't know. I'm just mindful of where the money is going, I get that. not, not yeah. just the experience yep. I'm having, yep. but you know where, where those dollars are going anyway. I get that. Huge, uh, huge shout out and congratulations to everyone at Orchestra Noir. I hope we can see more of this moving forward. So I uh, went around, I did a little bit of searching to see if there are some uh, instrumental or uh, so-called classical takes on the music of Rick Ross. And I did actually find something. I found a, a recording here of pianist David Hoffman performing an arrangement of a Rick Ross tune called Aston Martin Music. So we'll listen to a little bit of this to get us to our next accident. Shell are featured in the original of of that uh, track alongside Rick Ross. But, you know, as, as we repeat, as I talk about a lot on this, on this podcast, I can make a case for the straight up hip hop tracks fitting into what we should be considering classical music fit, fit into that conversation. And I'm growing softer (laughs) on my approach when it comes to benchmarks being the way forward to me. I think it's very easy to make a case for a benchmark like a piano arrangement of a hip hop tune in the spaces, especially in classical radio, Mm. just to normalize, again, as I was saying, the concept of that Venn diagramming of hip hop and and so-called Classical music. The 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 recording that that we just heard, I'm sure you could write a, a really great break and you would go on the Wikipedia or whatever you have to do of uh, Rick Ross, come up with a break or or talk about a conversation we've had and now There is a listener who has never heard of Rick Ross who is now curious, and maybe there's a a rude email in there every now and again, but I also believe that there will be that one listener, even if just one listener, who happens to have the classical radio station on because they're trying to study or they're trying to sleep or or the baby's in the car or whatever, but to their core they're a hip-hop fan, being seen in that way is completely invaluable so think about what they'll tell their friends that they heard on the classical radio station and what they'll tell their friends and and their That's friends the home. it's just those seeds that mm-hmm. that we have to make the effort to plant. Now sometimes we have we you know when we talk about equity we're talking about the extra work that that requires. A lot of these hip hop artists are very stingy about about their music, even arrangements of their music. So that means now that the arts institutions have to start engaging a different community of of music makers and producers and and the legal part of it for the sake of that cultural competency, for the sake of that broader uh co- community engagement. I love that it's happening that folks like Rolling Stone are covering it we still have a long way to go i think when it comes to really normalizing that black aesthetic in in any classical space yeah i get that it too. happens yeah. it's still not normalized right i get that too all right well i have uh an accidental this week i'm going to give it you know what i'm i'm just going to have to go ahead and give it a flat um oh. because of the harm that I that I see being done from from mm-hmm. the outside. I'm reading here uh from the Baltimore Sun. The headline is real life R-E-E-L, Real Life or Real Life, R-E-A-L. New Film Tar appears to borrow from former Baltimore Symphony conductor Marin Alsop's biography. The headline itself was a little shocking to me because everything that people are telling me about this movie, Tar, that I have not seen and you have not seen yet, um, is about a bad conductor who gets her due, who has to pay the piper. Mm -hmm. I literally have not even read a synopsis of the film. I like to go into movies as blind uh, as I can. But to understand the story of this movie and that being paired to Maren Alsop, someone who I celebrate as a as a great conductor as a yeah. as a great change maker. It yeah. was a little surprising to me. Well what were your initial reactions to learning that folks are are making those comparisons here?
1: Um like you I have not read the synopsis. I haven't watched a trailer apart from you know something that gets on TV when I'm going up to go to the bathroom or something like that. Maybe a snippet here or there. I always worry whenever they put out a movie about classical music because of what it's going to prop up. Mm -hmm. Right? So I don't know Marin Alsop's story. Um, I didn't even know she had a biography out. So maybe there's a winter reading list edition. I don't know. But I do understand um, what she's talking about in that she has, she feels like she's picking up pieces now because here comes this film where things are a little bit too on the nose with some of the things from her biography and people watch the film and all of a sudden they're slowly turning and looking at her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she has to go, no, wait a
0: minute. Let me read a little bit from this article just to give some context for folks who don't know. It says here, Tar, the buzzy new feature film starring Kate Blanchett about a pioneer and predatory female classical music conductor has become an unwelcome and troubling distraction for Marin Alsop, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's music director laureate. The, mu- the movie is entirely fictitious, as the writer-director Todd Field makes clear. But not only has the character of Lydia Tarr seemingly been fleshed out with details from Alsip's biography, the film mentions uh, Marin Alsop by name. Uh, Field's protagonist, again, this is the writer of the film, uh, the protagonist, quote, clearly is based on Alsep the New York Times recently concluded. So it's not just hearsay or people whispering, oh, maybe this is a, a, about Miran Alsip. We have actual newspapers and, and real critics mm-hmm. saying that obviously this film director wrote this movie about Miran Alsip. Um, predatory is just, again, a word that I would not approximate to Maren Alsop. When she stepped down uh, from her position with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, as we talked about here on Triloquy, my memory was that there was this ivory tower, a phrase that she used Mm -hmm. that she could not budge. So now, months later, maybe even a year later, I forget when that was, we have a movie that many people are identifying as being based on much of her life story, and she's painted as... The bad person.
1: I think it's very telling. It's very interesting. She thinks that too. She says, because it appears the screenwriter read about my life and decided to use some superficial details from my life to write the script, I am in the unfortunate position of having to contend with many questions about the fictional character of Tar and Todd Field's film created without my knowledge or consent. I get that. So I get that. One thing
0: that we do know is that no matter what, People love the mess. Yep. They may not show up for Beethoven, but they go going to show up for some mess. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, well, I, I, I feel like I don't even have to ask you. It seems like that was not lost on the creators Of this film that if they put made a movie about uh, this woman conductor who you know faced adversity and and ended up you know triumphing overall yeah there would be some people interested in that but what people are more interested in is seeing a conductor fall even if it's a a woman conductor Mm -hmm. as it's always said in in showbiz the only thing that people love more than the come up is the fall off you know but, and and of course the comeback they they love even more but i don't again i don't see miran alsup as having had a fall off I, I, I if someone were to just ask me my opinion on miran alsup i would talk about a woman who did her best and moved on with her life when the pushback right seemed to you know uh be be
1: more than the support yeah um and again being concerned about what uh, preconceived notions are propped up by films like this. Now, take that idea of a maestra, a, a woman conductor mm-hmm. getting a come up. And, I, I mean, doesn't that add to a, a, an already difficult position that they're in? Listen, as, as a woman in the business. Listen,
0: Pavarotti, who we have talked about on this podcast and all of his problematic glory, is still very much. Performing around Italy, okay. There are so Pavarotti many- is
1: dead. You're talking Placido Domingo. Placido Domingo. My bad.
0: Yeah. Um, there are so many true stories of people who deserve their comeuppance, or who you know who de- who deserve what's coming to them, whatever that we don't talk about, mm-hmm. but we have to just create a story around a very influential woman composer. And, and put that out there. I'm not going to, you know, there's so many people who, who would say that they feel like I'm stretching for me to identify a misogyny in a film that I haven't even seen. But just based on what I'm reading and based on what I'm understanding, I can't dismiss that aspect of it. Mm. from this mm-hmm. we this is not a movie about uh james levine and all his bullshit this is a, a, a movie that is drawing according to the new york times and many others clear comparisons between a, a fictitious uh, woman conductor and a real life woman conductor who's already gone through enough and y'all gonna drag her across the coals some more mm. i think is unacceptable but stepping back away just specifically uh from the subject matter is this, <laughs> you know, you, you you talked about, you know, how much money? We talked about how much money do we have for uh, the the opera house? How much money and time do you have for a classical music film? I mean, there are a lot of movies out there, a lot of movies coming out. We bet we about to have Wakanda forever yep. in the theaters. Yep. Am I really being expected? To spend $20 to $25 plus $10 for a Coke plus $15 for the uh, popcorn plus another $7 for the M&Ms on orchestral music, for goodness sake. I just don't see it. (laughs) I don't see it for myself. (laughs) It seems like really the only reason, uh, this is hard for me to say because there are so many people who are impatiently waiting for my opinions on this film. Mm. I'll see it eventually. Offering opinions on the film at the end of the day would be the only reason I go to see it. Mm. And as jam-packed as my schedule is these days again, we talk about you talk about how there's a lot of competition for the free time. You got that right. I don't know if this is winning the race. I mean, is, are you going to go out of your way to mask up and go to a movie theater to see this?
1: It's got Kate Blanchett though,
0: and I like Kate Blanchett. So, as we were talking about last week, when it comes to the opera, casting is a, is is a significant a part. part part of it. Yeah, that seems to have have done this for you. If this were a a, a woman actor who whose name you didn't know or who isn't famous, someone who just happens to uh, be able to conduct with the story, the idea about a woman conductor and and her downfall. Just based on the fact that this is yeah. about an orchestra and orchestral music, would that do it for you? I
1: will wait. In that instance, I would wait until it came out on HBO. But if it went to Showtime, I'm not paying for Showtime to watch. Period. I mean, <laughs> I happen to have uh, Showtime,
0: and that's oh, fine. you do. <laughs> but yeah. I. I, I the, the the point that I want to make is that there is an expectation for anyone who has ever had any proximity to orchestral music to be so grateful that the film industry is acknowledging and seeing us that we'll go and run and see this film. And while I, I do, you know, have some gratitude for orchestral music making it onto this platform, at least for the conversation and maybe even to potentially grab some folks who are curious about the orchestral experience who haven't done it before and get. Them in a concert hall, you know. I I see all of that. It's it's not enough for me to see yet another predominantly white orchestra playing, you know, music that doesn't represent a community that I belong to Mm. on on stage. And just because it's a movie, I'm I'm gonna go see it now. Watch me go see the movie, and I love it, and I think it's provocative and X (laughs) Y Z, you know. But just uh, from the from the before seeing the film perspective. I've, I'm I'm not just running to the movie theater to catch this one yeah. especially if if I'm going to be supporting you know what someone like Miran Alsop is uh, you know it's something that's creating a headache for her you know as someone who from a distance again has uh, uh, appreciated the decisions and and the motion she's tried to make if this is a, an attempt to uh, sully up her character I'm I'm extra uninterested.
1: Right. And that's a good point because the article also mentions the fact that uh, also has been described in new accounts as a front runner to lead several major American orchestras, including some of the so-called big five. And it would be crappy if something like this film, I mean, I really feel like that's reaching. I feel like that might be going a little bit far because I feel like the search committees would know. (sighs) There are so many, and I'm not going to say anyone's name, but
0: there are so many conductors who I've talked to offline who say conducting ability just at the end of the day doesn't have a whole lot to do with who gets these jobs. And I can, mm-hmm. and again, maybe I'm stretching now, I'm, you know, we're both being conspiracy theorists today. It's not going to not. Impact the way some board members, especially some search committees, you don't think, think so. about hiring uh, uh, Marin Alsop for for their orchestras. It's not going to be a non sequitur, huh? Especially if people go back based on this movie and read the biography and identify you know whatever things are are pulled out of and now they're running in their own minds with uh, again all of this is conjecture i haven't read the biography i haven't seen the film i just don't like the idea of one of the most influential woman uh, conductors out here to be the subject of some bullshit especially considering all the men who are still performing comfortably
1: Mm, who, who who we
0: need to be addressing and in, and engaging you sit down in Argentina <laughs> anyway um so yeah I'll see it and I'm going to talk to y'all about it but the first thing I'm seeing at the movie theater is Wakanda, uh, Wakanda Forever uh, that, yes. that's, this is not going to be what, <laughs> what the next time I get to go to the theater this is not going to be it right, and right. I will see it eventually and tell y'all about it and you go ahead and get the popcorn I'm laying off the concessions use <laughs> it because so you got to bring them in your pocket you see <laughs> You have to stop at Walgreens or the Dollar Tree before you get to the theater. Uh, Bring a pocket of loose (laughs) Raisinets. Anyway, uh, thoughts and prayers (laughs) to to everyone involved. Um, I'll have uh, links to uh, both of these accidentals that we offered in the description, uh, I did take a look, and it looks like there's some uh, interesting music on the soundtrack of this film, Tar. There's some uh, Gustav Mahler on the soundtrack. I think I saw that they put uh, Elgar's cello concerto mm. in it. That that plays a role, of, you know, a, mm-hmm. a great piece of music. But there's also um, a number of works by uh, composer Hildur. I think uh, this is an Icelandic uh, composer, mm-hmm. and is offering, you know, again more of that uh, contemporary uh, aesthetic that I really appreciate out of orchestral music. We're talking about um, a woman composer who, you know, who I, I, I always champion the um, the underrepresented in this field, especially yes, when yeah. it comes from uh, the composer point of view. So, uh, shout out to Hildur. Gulnen Dolter. This is a little bit of the second movement of a work called Tar, uh, as performed by the London Contemporary Orchestra Music here from the soundtrack of the film Tar to get us into our second movement. so called classical films that really hit the mainstream outside of like the educational or, or or that just genuinely got to the masses i'm thinking about the film amadeus i didn't see that until maybe 2 years ago or something you know I definitely wasn't there I'm I'm not sure if, if folks you know really gave a damn about that outside of classical music I'm thinking about the movie the red violin did you see that one I didn't see I, I thought that was a little bit interesting there's the film called the piano which is isn't necessarily a classical music film but I don't know I I, I, I think the concept of classical movies you know classical music themed films, that that's a stretch for, for, for a lot of people anyway. You yeah. know, there's there's the film the, the only one that I can think about, and this is me using my perspective on the idea of classical music, the film Drumline, you know, with uh, Nick Cannon. Mm-hmm. That hit the culture and and that hit the people. But that Culture of music that that type of classical musicking is already so embedded in you know black culture southern culture you know music education all of those things it really hit this movie tar just seems to be far removed from the perspective of folks who aren't orchestral musicians or or like going to orchestra concerts or studied conducting or, or something like that I'm I'm not sh- I'm just not sure if it works conceptually yeah, classical I'm- music and film at yeah. least at least considering the the culture around classical
1: music today we'll have to see what happens with that film lenny on leonard bernstein see if uh if that hits did you ever see brassed off about uh a minor miners in britain uh in a brass band trying oh somebody to told world? me about that yeah but yeah. i haven't seen it um yeah i'm not thinking of anything uh immortal immortal beloved flopped <laughs> yeah i can't think of anything
0: well Maybe this is actually an interesting film and I I need to go give it the time and my $20 at AMC or whatever the uh, movie theater is Mm -hmm. this week, but uh, uh, these days. But anyway, uh, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share some music that we've been spending a little bit of time with and the role it's played in our lives, at least since the last time we recorded. So I'm going to go first um, and... Uh, give a shout out to VJ Iyer. Uh, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. That uh, interview is going to come up in a, a early January opus of Triloquy, but he let me know that uh, his jazz group was playing the Dakota, uh, a venue here in uh, Minneapolis uh, for folks who don't know. So, you know, I immediately went to the website and bought a ticket and everything. Well, something happened and they weren't able to play the show. So instead, um, uh, the McPhail jazz quintet Performed and again for folks who don't know, uh, the McPhail School of Music uh, is a, a local music teaching institution. Someone recently told me it's the largest private uh, music school for uh, teens and uh, developing musicians mm. in the country. It's a big deal. I've given um, keynote speeches there. I've done some teaching for them. So anyway, they they uh, they got the the faculty quintet from this school to play the jazz club um, instead and. Maybe it's just been a while since I've been to a a jazz show, but I was really surprised at how standard the rep was, and not just standard, but all of the typical, what I will put in that sort of Beethoven 5 category of music, but on the jazz side. So we're talking about somewhere under the sea. We're talking about fly me to the moon. We're talking about uh, not in the mood, but that's basically the only sort of standard that was not performed. In, but before I talk about uh, the piece of music, though, that I want to highlight that was inspired by this performance, I wonder in your jazz radio days, what the programming look like when it comes to uh, what is familiar to people, what's a standard versus what's adventurous or or exploratory. Mm-hmm. How many times did you air in the mood? But was that just in the no, in the rotation? Not
1: one time. Um, most of the programming is taken care of computer, by computers. You know, you would um, put everything in a hard drive and play from there. Yeah, you know, build your playlist that way. Well. At KVNO, when I was the jazz music director, we had a box and there was heavy rotation, medium, light, and recurrent Mm -hmm. or jocks choice. And there was a method that we had that you would pull the CDs from. So I was constantly rotating in the new releases and Mm -hmm. those are what we were really focusing on. Josh Redman, um, Aldi Neola, uh, things like that. Do
0: you feel like the the jazz audience that you were, you know, doing this curation for appreciated the the more new release? What well, would you say that's that that was your experience with this audience? Or did you get the phone calls or emails about no, we want more recognizable things or or things that we can sing along to? Right? There were a
1: few specialist hosts that we had early in the evening that did that sort of thing. Uh um shout out to Bill Watts host of Primetime Jazz the late Bill Watts uh, had a story about everything you know cuz he was a, a a big jazz head and he would spin 4 hours of gold and tell amazing stories based then on could, standard rep though you yeah, say yeah by the you know the old stuff but if you were listening late in the evening and overnight you would hear maybe 25 minutes out of the hour would be new releases uh, 10 to 15 minutes would be your recurrent and medium rotation, and maybe 5 to 10 minutes out of the hour would be something from history.
0: Okay, well I, I, again, I'm asking all of these questions because maybe the jazz audiences do want to hear a whole concert of, of things that they know. But I was not prepared Mm. for that. I I thought I was, anyway, that is not a dig. (laughs) That is just my honest reaction to this concert I went to. So by the end of the show, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, this was was a nice night out. I'm not going to complain, but I thought I was going to, you know, really hear something experimental or, or exploratory. That's just the kind of listener I am. But, you know, they flipped my whole mood of this quintet by ending with an arrangement of an Anita Baker track called Sweet Love. I don't know if you spent much time with Anita Baker in your day. You know, Anita Baker was the road trip music. Of, mm. of my family growing up, my dad liked to drive. My dad worked overnight, so it was just easier for him to drive overnight. If we have a twelve hour trip somewhere, plus the us the kids, you know, we could just go to sleep and not bother him. So to help facilitate that, my mom used to play a lot of Anita Baker. <laughs> so when I hear this jazz quintet closing with uh w- with an arrangement of Sweet Love, not only am I thinking about my childhood, but I'm thinking about how this is a great example of. A standard that maybe a lot of people wouldn't know, but should know. So if I, I, I you know, I, I think that if if we're going to talk about curation and and digging into things that audiences might know we have to go beyond just you know what what's in the real book or or what's in you know the the standard uh, jazz programming for a space i know because of the type of listener i am you know i may be separate from the person who rightfully so wants to go to a jazz club and here's something they know. So you know, mm. I'm I'm still working on how I think about that. But I, I I don't know. I I I prefer a live concert experience to be an experience that's different than what I can get on Spotify on my way to the on my way to the venue.
1: Right. But isn't it the case in university settings they have classes that specialize? I mean, isn't there like one band that does that sort of thing, and then you take a there's another band that does the avant garde? I mean, isn't that I mean, that's why Wait. I'm asking
0: the questions. I didn't major in jazz, so oh. I, don't, I don't know what they're doing. But anyway, so thinking about the um, Anita Baker track, Sweet Love, of course, listening and enjoying the original, thinking about the arrangement that I saw at the Dakota as performed uh, by the McPhail Jazz Quintet, going down a rabbit hole, and found uh, an arrangement for solo acoustic guitar by Kent Nishimura that I've enjoyed, and I want to share a little bit of... Uh, a little bit with y'all today so here's his take on anita baker's sweet love nice smooth take on an r&b classic his name kent nishimura
1: man he is doing some stretching with that left hand
0: yeah i was noticing that i do you know there's always a little dust in the corners i'm not a guitarist not not me critiquing guitar performances but i I do wish there was a little bit more if i were listening to a piano i would say the right hand so i guess with guitar i'm saying that that high e string the the melody Mm, you know mm -hmm. um but at the same time the fact that he's creating like a rhythm section yep. on his own and and doing this. I yeah. think it's I think it's really cool. Again, just as we were talking about with that piano arrangement of the Rick Ross, this is another great example of how we can set a benchmark, normalize this sort of approach to acoustic guitar in classical spaces so that we're, you know, uh broadening our audiences and helping more people be seen and honestly platforming a really cool track yeah something that's nice to listen to all of the solo uh guitar etudes and uh sonatas by scarlatti and all of those people they're just lovely i think it's great to have this platformed as well i think if there are jazz ensembles that are taking these more uh contemporary RB, and you know i'm using that word contemporary but sweet love has been a song probably for 30 years now longer you know um i was playing that in my dj days yeah um it's 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 just it's it's great music that I think can help bridge that gap and and be a benchmark into reframing classical music, even reframing jazz. Because I'm sure that there's some very straight ahead uh, jazz ensembles that wouldn't go into the mm-hmm. uh, '80s and '90s R and B. But sure, you know the the group I saw at the Dakota uh, did. So while I didn't, you know, love the you know very 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 standard set i am more of a new music listener uh, an exploratory you know discovery based music listener you know i I can affirm that and also celebrate the platforming of this you know really great classic tune by anita baker so be sure to uh, go check out kent nishimura's take on and i'll have a link in the description
1: you're a fan of anita baker or at least you know the catalog from road trips mm-hmm. have you heard her sing you belong to me oh of course Whew. of course
0: Whew. and you know she recently got the rights to uh all of her music you know the, the publishing to her music it's it's something how you can be such yeah. a famous person and not have any and money. not even have the rights to your own songs to to, to yeah. your to your own stuff so shout out to anita baker for for that as well all right what you got this week uh
1: need to give a rest in peace to Mimi Parker, who uh, died just yesterday, 55 years old, ovarian cancer. Screw cancer. Uh, Let's get that out of the way. Um, Mimi Parker was married to Alan Sparhawk. They're both Duluth residents. And in 1993, they formed a band called Low. Um, Very successful all around the state and across the country. They have a a big following. Um, The two of them are married. Did I mention that? They are married. And excuse me, they have a sound that you, if you have to put it somewhere, minimalist or slow core, Hmm. you know, and that's uh, another name uh, (laughs) that you slap on somebody that the, and then they don't like it. Yeah. Alan was never a very big fan of it, but the idea of it Seem to be to create a lot of space in their in their music. The songs go on for a long time. The tempo is slow. The reverb is all the way up. Sometimes some digital delay in there. And I always respected them for the fact that they. You know, it's it's interesting. We're talking about uh, human contact and human aspect of things. I think that they just really connected with one another mm. and were able to stay in the moment to keep the tempo the way that it was and not rush it. And, um, you know, and if you hit a clam note, when you got the reverb all the way up and a delay on, you're going to know you're, people are going so it. to gonna, say it's a clam. It's going to be mean, obvious
0: that maybe that's how they wanted it to sound. <laughs> but I think uh,
1: just the, you know, the tight connection that they had as collaborators, it, you know, like communing, you know, it's, um, they maybe even going into a trance together but um, I wanted to bring in the low track that really features Mimi. She's a a drummer and the vocalist, one of the vocalists for the band. Uh, This is when I caught on to him in 2013, and it's much more of an alternative pop track. It's not the slowcore sound. Uh, It's called uh, from the 2013 album, The Invisible Way. This is Just Make It Stop. Talking about the human aspect of things, of communing, it was really interesting to listen to the music and look a little bit at social media and know that there were thousands of people across the state who were all doing the same thing. They were listening to the music and telling stories and remembering, and I think that that's something very beautiful to inspire and I hope that Alan knows that the the state is here supporting. and. Um, I, I I appreciate the fact that you could see them at a big arena style or outdoor style show. Like just two months ago was their last performance live together uh, up in Duluth. Or one afternoon you might catch them in the record store at Electric Fetus with six other people. Mm-hmm. You know they were they were in the community. They were, you know, your your friendly neighborhood musician.
0: Yeah. Well, death is just as temporary as life, and you know. Thanks to the causes that Mimi Parker put out into the world and recording all of this music, she has a legacy that will move on and and live on forever. I, I'm learning about her now, but now I, I get to learn about her and we get to spread you know her legacy to so many people. It's just you know when it when it comes to death, I, I always try to be positive because we have the opportunity to celebrate them. You know they can't celebrate themselves anymore; they don't have the the life to do that. So here we are. To, to do that on their behalf. Yeah. And and all in the, as you were, as you're saying, all in the name of human connection and the uh, human experience. So yeah, rest, rest in power to Mimi Parker and long live the music of Lowe, really. Uh, great to share that here, especially with the local connection. I think that's yeah. that's always great. Again, speaking about community, as we were talking about um, in the in the very beginning of this. All right, well, uh, we're going into the third movement. Uh, the guest this week is Elijah Daniel Smith. Elijah uh, is a composer who. Is you know really hitting his hitting his stride out here. He's um, the uh, commission uh, recipient, the latest commission recipient uh, from the American Composers Orchestra. Got to uh, work and collaborate with him back in June in New York City. Uh, he offers a really important perspective on the diversity of blackness, black music, and the black experience as a composer. That I think is uh, very very important. Not everybody that's black and writing music. Is writing jazz, or is writing mm-hmm. blues, and or or hip hop? There, there's a lot of uh, different things happening out there, and uh, uh, Elijah does a great job of making that point. And you know, I, I also talk about the fact again that. His work has come up on Triloquy and and some of his stories. And, you know, it was a good lesson for me to have to actually face someone who, you know, I I may have said a a thing or two about. (laughs) I think we have, you know, I think we have a a great uh, relationship now. It's been phenomenal to get to hang out with uh, Elijah and and get to know him better. But I think that's something I needed. So, you know, when it comes to talking about living composers, especially... I, I now pretend that I'm gonna see them tomorrow, and if i if I said what I said, I said what I said and <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great to get that human connection and that human experience. So we do talk about um, a bit of that. I can't remember if that's going to um, pop up on um, on round one this week. This is going to be a, a two-part interview. But what does come up is Elijah's origins in music and as a composer. A lot of composers you know, started taking piano or violin lessons when they were little kids or came up through orchestras or uh, wind ensembles. Well, Elijah came up not only through the guitar, but the guitar uh, as it relates to some of these uh, rock bands and and metal bands. So he Mm. gets into that um, as his catalyst uh, into composition um, a little uh, later in this interview, and he cites a band that I had never heard of. They're called Trivium. Have you ever heard of Trivium?
1: Not one time. He
0: talks a little bit about how Trivium was at the uh, beginnings of uh, his journey as a musician. So uh, to transition into the third movement and into my conversation with Elijah Daniel Smith, we're gonna listen to a little bit of a Trivium tune called Until the World goes cold the world is going cold here in minnesota as we're sure you know I, I have the heavy sweater on today That's so right. <laughs> so shout out to elijah daniel smith hope y'all enjoyed this conversation here's a bit of until the world goes cold by trivium to get us into the third. <music>
2: It's definitely been um, kind of surreal getting a little more recognition for things. You know, I think it's one of the like going, going back five, six years when I was in my undergrad and stuff like that, it felt like, you know, the point that I'm at right now is a long, long way away. So it definitely, it definitely feels pretty um, abnormal for it to be kind of right here right now. And it's, it's really gratifying, but it's kind of, it still feels a little surreal. And like, I don't really know what's happening most of the time.
0: <laughs> when you think back, you know, five to six years, do you see uh, or, or do you think back to that time as being filled with all of these different composers and I have to reach my way to the top? Or I mean, that's definitely mm. how it is from the instrumental side. We're in these studio. I'm in a bassoon studio and I'm like, OK, if all of us show up to the audition, it's just going to be one of us. So there's always that little <laughs> that bit of competition that's in there. Is it similar from the composer side of things?
2: I think so. I mean, I, you know, I think just because of the nature of it, like you're saying, you know, a lot of these calls or scores and things like that, there is one winner. Um, and so I think the nature of it, or sometimes there's more than one, you know what I mean? Um, I think the nature of it breeds competition. Um, but at least in my experience, the composers that really focus on that competitive aspect of it are usually the ones to avoid socially mm. just because there's already enough competition in this in this world and it's already tough enough when you get those rejections and the way I've always sort of seen it is that I would much rather be friends with all these people so if they win something that I don't I can be happy for them so it's just Mm -hmm. like it's you know I I I think there's definitely that element of like having to beat everyone else out and you got to be at the top but I find that to be probably the least enjoyable part of this and the mindset and mentality that I try to avoid the most.
0: Are, do you uh, see yourself as having the level of privilege to be completely woo-woo about composition? Oh, it's this is what's in my heart and I'm writing it down on paper. Or is there a considerable consideration for, okay, I got to pay the bills. I got to do X, <laughs> Y, and Z. How do you balance those <laughs> two things?
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, I'm not going to try to present it as anything that's not like I definitely come from a privileged point of view and all of this, you know, not least of all my upbringing, but also because I'm in a PhD program that's a stipend right now. So it's like, there is that big consideration that I have been afforded an opportunity that a lot of people would kill for. And it would be dishonest of me to characterize it as anything else but that. Um, but on top of that, I find, you know, I, I have a, a real... Um, mixed sort of relationship with people who are like, I write because I have to, not because I want to. And I've mm-hmm. always kind of felt it, I've always seen it as like, we write music because we get to. And there are a lot of people that would love to do this, but can't for various reasons either they never had the opportunity, they don't have the means, or they don't have the time because they're working three jobs to get by and they don't have time to write music. So I've always felt that it is a privilege for me to get to do this and it will never be anything other than that it can be a frustrating privilege at times but i would rather have a frustrating privilege than not have that so i mean it's it would be very short sighted and narrow minded of me to be like oh it's my it's just in my heart and it's all i can do is like it's like, <laughs> it's like yeah. i get i get to do this and i'm fortunate to get to do it
0: yeah. The, uh, you know, I was talking uh, with Shelly Washington a little while ago, someone who I, I know that, you know, we were talking about the difference between the human being and the brand that kind of mm. gets out there. Do, do you see a, a difference between Elijah, the person who all of your friends know and, and hang out with? and Elijah Daniel Smith, who you know, we see these headshots. <laughs> we we see this list of of compositions. Are are you having to change the way you move as you as this privilege manifests more and
2: more? Um, I mean, I really, I don't think so. And I even if that was becoming a thing, I think I'd definitely try not to. But it's funny you say that because, like, just yesterday, um, there is a, a video from saxophonist that I've worked with, named Julian Velasco. Um, And he used, you know, he said Elijah Daniel Smith and I put it on Instagram and one of my friends that I've known since high school, uh, you know, sent me a message and she was like, it was really weird hearing your full government name in this context. (laughs) And so like, I think there's probably, probably an element of that, um, for people who have known me for a long time to see this whole, like, Oh look, like headshots and all this stuff. But for me, I, I kind of feel as though it I don't feel as though I have a different a different brand for my personality. I I think I'm a pretty straightforward person, um, and I think that's the same in my music. And the yep. same in the way I present myself to people. I, I try not to be anything other than what I naturally am for better or for worse. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that you have come up on the triloquy podcast before. And you know, when <laughs> I it's it's like again, the the world gets so small the 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 deeper you get into this music. Folks that I read about or or you know, talk about on the show end up being folks that You know, I I meet when we met in person for the first time. I was like, oh, gosh, I wonder if (laughs) I wonder if he listens to Triloquy. And so so we had that conversation. Um, So let's revisit that quickly basically my idea was so this was in conjunction first of all with a project you had with the chicago symphony and i was like okay well here's this guy this composer using all these big words that people don't understand and and x y and z maybe i would have <laughs> pulled back a little bit if we had that personal <laughs> relationship but i don't I'm know i still think i i think there's something to that i i wonder if you've had time to to think about those words from the triloquy podcast the idea that we have to speak directly to audiences and, and yeah. not over their heads
2: yeah i mean i you know when i i remember listening to that podcast and um as soon as you know you're like a bit you know contradictory hypocritical <laughs> and i was like shit and i was like he's fucking right um and so like, I think it, it, you know, looking back on that, looking back in the program note that I wrote, I'm not entirely sure what I would have said different, not or differently, not that I wouldn't have said anything differently, but I think I, I personally despise writing program notes to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, I had a lot of difficulty with that one because I was thinking about these, you know, big word topics um, when I was writing that piece. And so I felt like, you know, when writing that program note, it was kind of like, what do I say? Like, do I just do I just be honest about what I was thinking about when I wrote this piece or do I try to present this thing as something that it's not for the sake of being more accessible and you know I kind of I went in the direction of like I'm just going to say what I had in my you know in my head when I was writing it and I you know you're absolutely right I don't think that thought process is accessible to a lot of people and so looking back on it there was probably a way to find a happy medium in between those two and find a way to present these things Um, but you know I I think I think it's important to hear that kind of criticism, you know, because all of us are going to make mistakes, all of us are going to believe things and then sometimes not live up to the things that we believe in for a variety of reasons. So I think it was it was important to it was an important learning experience, the very least to know that, like these two, like, you know, I I think this and then all of a sudden people are like, you're not doing that, though. So Mm -hmm. figure that shit out.
0: Well, and and for what it's worth, it was definitely a learning experience for me as well. I, 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 at, at this point, I pretend that everyone I talk about, I'm going to meet one day. So, fair and enough. that does and that doesn't change. You know, some the way I address some things or some people. But I want to I, I, I want to I wanna pull on this thread for a little while of program notes. Um, mm. I I don't advertise it a lot, but I I write my fair share of program notes. Uh, for artists and for uh, presenters who just don't want to do it. So I understand how much of a lift that is. At the same time, there are so many folks who need those program notes. And, and my work as a radio producer, I need to have something to sell this piece of music to uh, the audience with, especially when we're talking about new music. I can make up a story about Beethoven, but you know, if I have a work of yours on my playlist and I can't find any program notes now i just have to make something up you know our, our yeah. program notes um something that you see as an important part of the delivery and presentation of your music
2: um man i don't know about my music in particular um i think again i think it's really difficult for me to be an accurate judge of anything regarding my own music because to me it's straightforward because i wrote it but then other people might hear it and be like you absolutely need to explain that because why would anyone else understand what you're thinking there but i think I think in general i do think there is an importance on uh on you know program notes are important for audience members and my um distaste for program notes isn't with them as a concept it's with the way they're executed most of the time because i Mm. think that you know there are multiple types of program notes there are program notes that are clearly written for you know the audience to help bring them in and then oftentimes in much more in academic environments and stuff but there are program notes that's just full of like the biggest words that the composer could find and self aggrandizing bullshit the whole time. And it's just like, there comes a certain point in time where I'm kind of like, that doesn't tell me anything. And it feels like they're, you know, program notes are kind of like patting ourselves on the back. Um, and so I think I have a difficult time personally writing program notes that I feel, um, are honest to what the piece is. Um, and actually can, but can still bring the audience into it. Um, so I don't know if that really answers the question but I I do think they're important but I have a hard time with them. <laughs>
0: yeah, and and I understand because I've I've talked with a number of composers who sort of see the possibility not necessarily I'll, I'll say but the possibility of program notes being a means of policing the audience into mm. reacting to the music in a certain way or understanding the music uh, from a from a certain perspective i mean do you, uh, you you write many different types of of pieces of music but uh, i guess i'll ask is it required for an audience member when it comes to most of your music to have background or do you feel like you write the kind the type of music that someone can just take in and and uh evaluate and experience in their own way
2: i i want to write that kind of music whether or not it actually is that way um is a different story i think mm-hmm. you know i have a lot of pieces that are like pretty aggressive right out of the gate and i think in times like that it probably is a little helpful to have something for an audience member to look at and say like okay now i understand why this is so you know gung-ho but at the same time i think it's uh it can be misleading sometimes um for me to say like oh this is what i this is what i was thinking about and this is what i want you to think because i think sometimes that can negatively impact Mm -hmm. the listener's experience especially if they don't hear what it is that i'm talking about so and you know like i think there are a lot of i haven't done this yet um but I know that there are a lot of composers who will name their like piece after it's written and then they'll come up with a whole like bullshit backstory about like what the name means <laughs> and, and everything. And like audience members are sitting there like, oh, I could totally hear that. And it's like, <laughs> so, like, you know, I think I want to avoid that. But I, I always have that in the back of my head. I'm like, am I like, telling some bullshit story about this right now that has nothing to do <laughs> with this piece? Like, I don't know.
0: So are you saying that you come up with titles first and then write the piece?
2: I usually have like an idea but like you know obviously when I'm starting the piece and then I find a name for it midway through is usually what happens. Um there are a couple of pieces where it's like I know what it's about but I haven't found a name for it yet and then I'll find a good name for it afterwards but at least it's still inspired by what you know inspired the piece. But hopefully hopefully I won't get to a point where I just come up with some like nonsensical name for a piece and like <laughs> oh, it means, means this.
0: Yeah. So. I mean because I think the other side of that spectrum is naming concert piece number one string quartet number five <laughs> yeah. you know and just do it <laughs> but why why is that not your approach just the plain jane all right this is a piece
2: yeah um i don't know i find that like those terms at least for me like as is, is awful as this i mean it's not doesn't sound awful but like i think there's there's definitely something to be said about a good title makes you want to listen to a piece a little more mm. and it can also make it a little more memorable um you know, There are a lot of great pieces out there that I love that are like string quartet number two or something like that. And it's a good piece, but there comes a point in time where I think like even having conversations with like my musician friends, there comes a point where I noticed like, we're just throwing out like fucking names and numbers, like not even like piece titles. Like, oh, this person number seven. And it's like, what is, yeah. what are you talking about? So I think that sometimes <laughs> having having piece titles can make it a little more, not I'm not going to say approachable for someone, but it, it can make it a little more memorable. And for someone who might've only heard this piece once, I think sometimes having a piece title can help them remember Like, Oh, yeah, I do. I do remember that piece. I don't remember what Bruckner's Seven sounds like, but I do remember this other piece that has a more interesting name and something more memorable. So yeah, yeah, you're
0: you're making me think of the uh, composer Joy Goodry. I don't know if you know Joy, but But Joy has a piece out there called "Shut the Fuck Up and Listen," and I was like, "Oh, okay, so this is something I need to hear." You know, so I, <laughs> yeah. so I, I definitely hear you when it comes to a title being able to engage or yeah. or, or create some curiosity.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
0: So, the case for most composers is um, some sort of instrument or some performance. Something was the mm. impetus. What was the the means to composition? Was that the case for you?
2: Um kind of. Mine was like really roundabout. I got, I first started taking music really seriously when I was about 10. Um, My sister, my older sister showed me uh, this metal band called Trivium. And the first time I heard them, that was the first time that I was like, I want to play music and I wanted to you know play guitar and scream in a metal band. And I did for a while. Um, And then I ended up accidentally enrolling in a classical voice program for performing arts high school. I didn't realize it was classical. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't realize it was classical until I got there. And day one, I was like, oh shit and like I couldn't (laughs) I couldn't read music or anything really so I was like this is gonna be a real tough time um but I think around my junior year the band that I was playing in split up and I figured I'm at the school studying classical voice and I think I realized that I actually really liked classical music so for a while I did really want to go down the route of being a classical singer and I did that for a year in college I went to University of Illinois for voice for a year and like very quickly realized that wasn't actually what I wanted to do. Um, and so it was pretty early on that I realized that I wanted to write music instead. And I was spending most of my time doing that anyway, instead of practicing much to my teacher's dismay. Um, (laughs) and you know, so I think, I think I, I kind of came into it like a lot of us do in college through some sort of performance, but at least for me, I think somehow my desire to write music was on a slightly different thing than singing because I maybe it was just that I still kept writing music in some sort after I stopped playing in bands and it naturally progressed into writing notated music because that's what I was studying but yeah so I mean I guess through through some sort of performance practice I got into it but I think they kind of came from slightly different um, musical experiences
0: what instrument did you play in the band that you were with
2: I played guitar and screamed in a metal band um, <laughs> in high school. Uh, was, so, playing,
0: yeah. was playing was playing so called classical guitar. Never of of interest. That was never an option in your mind.
2: Yeah, I don't know why. Like I, my first guitar teacher was like a classical guitarist, and I just wasn't into it. Like I kind of like, I just didn't give a <laughs> shit. I was like, dude, I want to like turn the amp up to eleven and shred, bro. Like I don't care about these like you know. so like I like and like you know he was I think maybe it was just again some stubbornness because i was like 12 and didn't really have the patience to really get into something that you know required that i learn how to read music and stuff like that um but yeah it just it never it was never really on my radar or something that i was really interested in
0: that's interesting because it it was pretty early in my development that i saw electric guitarists shredding as you say but you know with the third movement of of beethoven's moonlight sonata and 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 that sort of stuff i mean it's i don't know that that's it's it's interesting for me to hear your perspective from you know the the band you know the and not concert band as many of us come through but just straight up straight up band do you do you spend much time (laughs) with that music these days even in just if just in your free time
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try really hard to not only make one type of music cause I just find that to be like, it gets a little monotonous and I think ideas coming from other types of music make all of them more interesting. Um, so like, you know, I have some like sort of indie rock music out there. I do a lot of stuff with like modular synthesizers and stuff like that. And so I think it's all still there. I haven't played metal in probably 10 years. Um, it's not that I don't like that music anymore I think it's just that a lot of that teen angst that I had that was really fueling that desire thankfully isn't here anymore so like mm-hmm. I don't have as much of a desire to scream my head off into a microphone anymore as I did when I was 16 but you know
0: so is the electric guitar screamo concerto too obvious is, is that something <laughs> that you worked on or have something uh, having one of your back drawers or something
2: no, some somehow it's not. I don't know. I mean, that's definitely an idea. If someone commissions me to write that, I, I might try my best. But no, it's not. It's not a. Uh, it's not in my head right now. But there are things that I think are definitely that definitely do show up more subtly in my music. Like I got a saxophone quartet that's just as loud as humanly possible, right? You know, right, right from the start, and that I think, you know, it definitely comes from my affinity for loud, aggressive sounds. Um, and, you know, the piece that I, I wrote for the CSO, the percussion part was pretty heavily influenced by metal drumming and blast beats and stuff like that. So it's like it, it these things, I think, do show up um, in my music, but not in a really uh, obvious way sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll return to there. Th- there's something I want to return to here in a bit, but I do want to talk about um, sort of survival creativity. You talk about listening to many different types of music and and how that plays a role, you know, we artists we also have to do a various uh, array of jobs <laughs> and and yeah, there's there's creativity in just surviving as an artist including working outside of the field uh, we, we hmm. both discovered that we are are a bartending alum that, that's something that we've done <laughs> you know still behind the bars with degrees and music you know i think yeah. it's interesting to think about the um the guy or the the girl the individual who graduates with an engineering degree goes straight into a job and their career takes off that's not the case for folks yeah. like us how how have you engaged working outside of the field as you develop uh as mm-hmm. you have developed as, as an artist
2: yeah um I mean, I worked, I, I was a bartender for a little while in between my undergrad and, and my master's. Um, And it was, and it's funny, like in my undergrad, I wanted to do film scores and I went out to LA to do all that sort of stuff and realized pretty quickly it wasn't for me. And I think after making that realization, I kind of just distanced myself from that world and rather than push myself to do something that I really hated, um, I figured it would be more fun to just bartender for a little bit um and it it was something that does it you know like mixology and all this sort of stuff does really interest me i think it's fascinating um but at the time and maybe this is just like naivety or maybe a little bit of arrogance i felt as though it was temporary and that made me feel a little bit better about doing it because it was kind of like it was to me at the time it was one of those things where it's like i'm doing this until i can go back and get my master's um Mm -hmm. and i was lucky enough to get into a master's program um Otherwise, I probably, that mentality probably wouldn't have stayed around much longer if I wasn't, you know, if I didn't have a, a pretty clear end in sight. But I think, I think there's, it, it was, you know, it's definitely one of those moments where it's like you see these people coming into these bars who are barely older than you, who are clearly making three times as much as you are. And there were times where, you know, of course, I thought to myself, like, do I even want to keep doing, you know, this whole composer thing? Like, is this really, is this going to be the most fulfilling thing for me? Um, but I think I realized that I hated being in the film scoring industry so much, um, despite the potential for making a lot of money that I realized that I, I want to do what I want to do, even if I don't make a whole lot of money. Um, and I've kind of known that for a while, that I won't be happy if I'm slogging away at a desk job all day for Mm 90 K a year, if it means that I go home every night and I'm like, God damn it, I have to wake up and do this shit again tomorrow. So like, yeah. I don't know, maybe, you know, again, maybe that's, maybe that mentality won't last, but <laughs> we'll see.
0: What was it about film scoring that you didn't vibe with?
2: Mm. Oof. Um, I felt as though it was, you know, and this won't come as a shock to anyone. The film industry in general, I felt was pretty exploitative um and there was a reliance on young people who were willing to say yes to do a lot of things for a lot less than what they should have been given because it is so hyper competitive um that there's always that thought in the back of your head like you know whoever's hiring someone for these jobs there's very much that mentality a lot of the time not all the time but there's often that mentality of like if this person says no there are 40 people lined up right behind them ready to do Mm -hmm. it in their place and um probably for less so i think there's something about you know feeling like i you know i i wanted to to write music and i enjoyed interacting with musicians and all these people for so long because i felt as though it was a fairly honest group of people um and people who maybe valued each other a little bit more as professional colleagues because it is a different experience and then getting out to la and realizing that wasn't at all the case and it was just like can you do this for as little as possible? Yes. Great. Go do it until you're tired of it. And then we'll find somebody else. And there's something about that, that I just, it just sucked all of the joy and fun out of music making for me. And I'm sure that other people have had very different experiences. That was my experience. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was very much not the thing that it I thought it was going into it.
0: Yeah, that word exploitative is a very powerful word, especially mm-hmm. considering how most composers get on. It's through, you know, ex-fellowship or ex reading or or those sorts of things. How do you yeah. determine what isn't exploitative as, <laughs> as you've traversed these things?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, for new music, I think one of the things that prevents it from being exploitative for me is the fact that there isn't nearly as much money in this for people to really ex- exploit out of each other. Um, but I think there are definitely things out there where it definitely see like in retrospect that I've done, like there, are, you know, there are all these summer programs for composers where you pay a shit ton of money to go hear someone play your piece and they've mm-hmm. rehearsed it for two days. And you're like, okay. And so I think there are experiences like that, where from one, you know, on one hand, it's like, it is a helpful experience for young composers to do these things if they have the means available to them to go hear their pieces played by professional organizations or ensembles and get feedback from them and all these sorts of things. But at the same time, there is definitely an element in in those circumstances where it's like you know it's not ideal and that's not all summer festivals or programs at all and you know there are some that are that are great and there are some that like you do have to pay for but you still get a lot out of it um but there are definitely some out there where it's just like you pay a lot and you get very little back and i think that's uh the first thing that comes to mind when i think about exploitation um in new music, recognizing that there are some younger composers, especially composers who come from families with more means. They, you know, some people realize like, yeah, they'll pay three grand to come do this. And, you know, they put as little effort into it as possible and they walk away with, you know, a shit ton of money. So, you know, um, I think that's probably always not, maybe not always going to be the case, but it's been the case for a while. And I think so long as there are young composers out there who recognize they need to hear their music, played and they have the money to spend on that they will probably do so
0: yeah I want to underscore that for those of us who don't have that composer perspective and never Mm -hmm. see (laughs) that side of the industry I mean I'll, I'll just ask again you pay or it's it's a norm for composers to pay to get their pieces read that that's just a thing
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really common um, for summer festivals, you know, like you've got like your big summer festivals for instrumentalists, you know, you've got your Tanglewoods and your brouillard and things like right. that, where you pay to go play, you know, pay to play. And for composers, it's the same idea, except that you're just paying to have someone play your music on the other side. Um and I think the thing that's slightly different for composers is that in a lot of, you know, for an instrumentalist, you're spending a lot of your time in lessons, in rehearsals, all these different things. And your schedule is often like pretty fleshed out. Um, but for composers, a lot of the time there just isn't that, you know, we, there's a lot of downtime in these festivals. And, um, you know, having I, I went to Brevard as a vocalist in high school and like there our schedules are packed and there's a lot for us to do and there's a lot for us to get out of it. And it was a very educational experience. But then seeing the flip side of that as a composer there was there were days where like i didn't have anything scheduled and it's like i paid how much money to do this thing and i have like six things over 10 days and it's kind of like what what is what is the big payoff here and i think at the end of the day the big payoff is you get to put it on your resume you might get a decent recording out of it and hopefully if you're working with good musicians you'll learn a lot through that experience But then on the flip side, there are summer festivals out there that are pay to play that are really good. And they do actually give you some like fleshed out things, but there's definitely a price point there. And I think that alone um, tailors this industry towards people with financial means, because if you don't have that money, you can't do that.
0: So what justifies in the mind of a composer paying the three four or five thousand dollars to have one of these opportunities to get a piece of music read is it is it the hope that someone in the audience you know is a general manager of an orchestra and they'll commission me or what's the hope for outcome
2: i mean that's the that's the hope um but obviously most of us know that's never going to happen um i think the biggest for for me when I did those festivals you know to be perfectly honest I did them as resume boosters because I knew that I wanted to apply to PhD programs and I needed to have some more stuff under my belt going into that process so for me it wasn't it was it served a very utilitarian purpose um and it was maybe it was part of what helped me get into these programs maybe not um but it, it definitely isn't it's not an immediate gratification sort of thing. And it's not sort of like a, you know, direct in and out, you know, sort of equation. It's kind of like, this will be maybe a little sweetener on the page if someone's looking at it and wondering if I have enough experience to survive and, you know, actually do things in this environment. So, Hmm. um, and again, like that also speaks to like a lot of these academic programs where it's just like, if they're looking for things like that on, on the resumes of applicants, then they're immediately weeding out a lot of people who might not have had the financial means to do these things. And there's an element of, you know, sometimes inadvertent and sometimes maybe deliberate classism on these programs. So like, we don't want people who haven't done these things, but maybe they don't realize that, that means that they're excluding an entire portion of the population who might not have had the opportunity, but would be great for their program. So.
0: And I think that's, That makes programs like uh Earshot from the American Composers Orchestra so important because there aren't application fees and you know, ACO uh pays for travel and, and that sort of thing. That while what you're saying just contextualizes the importance of those sorts of programs for me to an even greater degree. Uh with the finances considered and aside, I wonder why things like American Composers Orchestra, Earshot. Uh, why you consider that important or, or maybe even vital.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, firstly, as you said, like it's all expenses paid and that's very rare. Um, Hmm. And again, like there are a lot of, you know, pay to play programs out there that are very much worth your time, but there are some that aren't. But thankfully, I think programs like ACO, a lot of younger composers who might not have had an opportunity to have the orchestra music played maybe the university they go to doesn't have you know an avenue for that to happen and they'd have to try to put together their own ragtag orchestra which is you know a lot of work um I think it's really important to have that opportunity for us to be able to say like yeah I get to go be around professional musicians in an orchestra who are going to give me direct feedback and I know that there isn't it's not just so this organization can get paid by us this is genuinely to foster you know orchestral experience and younger composers. Um, so I think those are, those are really important for us as composers, obviously, but I think it's also important for the industry in general. Um, I don't even know if I would use the word industry for new music community, whatever you want to call it. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's important because it gives younger composers an opportunity to, I don't want to say take risks, but learn about what the experience, you know learn about the experience of working with an ensemble that size to see what risk taking even looks like on that on that level to see what it would even be like to say like yeah i want to try this new thing is that even possible right here and if it is how do i go about doing that so it's it it gives a practical knowledge um to composing that i think is oftentimes a little elusive for younger composers
0: little bit there of a work called ice and obsidian by elijah daniel smith so grateful to have him on the show and to share part one of the conversation that i had with him looking forward to sharing part two with y'all next week what do you think about the aesthetic that elijah created in that piece we don't hear the electric guitar in that context in within a classical context very often, at all, that's something that would really grab my ear and make me lean a little bit closer onto the stage at the performer, or or to the uh, or to the recording that's being aired or, or shared wherever. I think it's really great, and I think it's a g- generally an aesthetic that classical spaces need to lean more into because it is classical through an American context, through American experiences, and something that is really quite beautiful at the end of the day.
1: That piece that you just played is more in line with what Lowe is known for.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think that that style of music is more difficult. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, I can, I can do that. Oh, well, I then, can, okay. You, know, you can do up. that. Well, why didn't you then? Yeah. You know,
0: that's always my response. <laughs> why didn't you then?
1: To do it and make it sound artistic, like it, and to make it musical, that's difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, before we get into the the fourth movement, we have these living composers out here, and you know, we we close with Elijah talking about the way that you know service organizations like American Composers Orchestra and, and other folks really just help living composers. I see the the need and I see the gratitude when I meet these composers and they get to see their works performed by these ensembles and they get these recordings created. And it's just it 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 fills and warms my heart to be able Mm. to make actual human impact. Again, we're we're talking about human connection. I I really love it. And I love that I get to do that, you know, as as a part of my living, just Mm. supporting composers who are out here trying to make it. You've been talking about composers and a General sense for over thirty years now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if your perspective on composers has shifted as you've uh, uh, had more proximity with living composers, even being a part of commissioning them and, and getting them on in some way.
1: Yeah, there are people too. There are people too. Uh, obviously, I can't speak to any from the canon that are dead and gone. But you know, you you read profiles on them, or you can read their correspondence and get a vibe for what they're they what what they were like, but. I think the veneer of that composer on a pedestal dropped away really quickly when they answered the Zoom call in a t-shirt that looked just like mine, Mm -hmm. you know, that they, they probably slept in it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too, you know, because it was COVID time or something like that. But, um, the composers of today that I have spoken with so far, they're just like your neighbor. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're not. The ones that I have run into are not um, putting on any airs. They're trying to make their bills just like everybody else. They mm-hmm. put, put their pants on one leg at a time, all that.
0: Yeah. And I think just being able to have that connection makes the stories that you tell about the music that much more personal sure. and that, uh, that, that much more relatable, that much more interesting. Again, we we continue, you know, always to circle this conversation. Well, are we throwing away the canon? Is it a both and sort of conversation? And you know, and, and my being reasonable? I I will say, fine. It's it's a both and. We we mix in the living composers with some of the more historical composers, but but just seeing the positive impact that just platforming and affirming living composers has. Um, my fellow human being, it's hard for me to justify spending 20, 25 minutes airing, performing, rehearsing, whatever, a piece of music by a composer who is long dead, who's not going to be at the performance and that space that we could be given to someone who's here and, and alive, right. and and not only just the moral support, but helping them pay their bills, helping them eat, so that's that's where I'm, I'm always coming from, I hope more folks will uh, give more room to the idea of centering, not just including, but centering uh, living composers, because it certainly transformed the way that uh, I engage music. I talk a lot these days. People know me as the person who, you know, affirms blackness through music, black performers, black aesthetics, all of that stuff. But it really did begin when I was uh, getting started in radio with living composers. Right. I just learned all of these names of people who are alive that I did not know. Of course, Along those lines, uh, along the way, I'm learning the names of women composers who I don't know that who are alive, black composers, other composers of color. So I think if if we can just, again, the, this, this uh, through line theme this week of a human connection, if we can just see the humanity behind some of this music, especially for living composers, we can create arguments for it and arguments why we should leave more of the so-called canon behind just so that we can make sure that we're doing what we can for folks who are here and now. So again, shout out um, and congratulations to Elijah Daniel Smith. Looking forward to sharing part two of our conversation with y'all next week. But it's time for us to get into the triloquy. And we're going to do it with a little music by George Gershwin. We're talking about growth. We're talking about building bridges. And I have uh, really been leaning into reconsidering the music of George Gershwin, um, especially some of his orchestral work. So we're going to get into uh, the fourth movement this week with a little bit uh the ending here of a work of his known as Catfish Row, the uh, Porgy and Bess suite brought to you by the gavon house orchestra of leipzig led by ricardo shai here's a little bit of that to really dig into and realize to open up my heart and my spirit to the music of George Gershwin is acknowledging the hurt and the trauma and the frustration that may be inappropriately pointed at folks like Gershwin. It's frustrating for me to think about the fact that we learn about Black orchestral aesthetics of music through this composer, before we talk about Margaret Bonds and and Florence Price and William Grant Still and, and James point. Johnson and all of those folks, so you know it's it's not about George Gershwin taking someone else's place because he made his own spot in history. I think that the way history, especially music history, is contextualized. It leaves room for people to, like me, to respond to the trauma and and to the hurt of a situation and point that toward you know, someone who did not create that system or, or perpetuate that system. I, I, I mentioned that just sort of as the framing and the introduction of what I want to talk about. In the Triloquy. So uh, back in 19, well, what year was it? Back in 1967, um, the late great James Baldwin wrote an essay called Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. In this essay, James Baldwin talks about um, some of the challenges that he faced living in New York City, the anti-blackness that he dealt with on a, on a daily basis, and the different communities including some Black folks who perpetuate that anti-Blackness. In this essay, he names uh, members of Jewish communities being a part of, of that. So, as we've been talking about all of as on social media people have been you know having one opinion or another um about words of Kanye West now we're talking about this nba player uh Kyrie who has said some things that he is unwilling to apologize for so through all of these conversations people have been taking different Excerpts from different things and different writings, and platforming it to make one point or another. So there was a quote that was taken from this James Baldwin piece that um, was put on Twitter, and that I liked. I did not understand or see the context under which that quote was was being platformed. So I was called to the carpet. You know, there there were questions about. Uh, my judgment and and my value system, because I liked a tweet that quoted this uh, James Baldwin piece. Um, the first thing I want to say before I go e- go any further is that we have to separate this very nuanced conversation from Kanye West. I've said it on this podcast in in past weeks. I'll say it again here. I'm categorically opposed. To the anti-Semitism that Kanye West has been spreading out there. I haven't paid a whole bunch of attention to what's been going on uh with, with that story, but I do believe that has to be said. He was wrong. There's no defending his statements. And there's no affirmation of him necessarily in writings or as they're platformed, you know, in writings by by James Baldwin now. Impact is more important than intent, and I understand how liking a tweet that is uh, misconstrued and taken out of context to support something anti-Semitic. I, I understand how that, um, especially for folks who don't know me, can be seen as anti-Semitism on my part. So I'm just I'm very sorry for the any negative impact liking that tweet um, had. There are very uncomfortable conversations that are being avoided, and I think it results in the continued segregation of communities, segregation of ideas, and ultimately a separation and continued uh, segregation of human beings. Anti-Semitism is wrong, period. Anti-Blackness is a through line of American culture, and it is um, utilized by people of all communities, again, even including Black communities. I think it's sometimes hard to really dig into the root causes of some of our our biggest, most uh, pernicious issues in this country because there is so much trauma, there is so much hurt. Again, I can understand how a person from a Jewish community could be very hurt by the liking of a quote from a James Baldwin Article titled Negroes Are Anti Semitic Because They're Anti White. There's a lot of nuance even in that title. And I think that title can even be taken out of context and used to, to say something that the author didn't mean to say. Um, how, how do you think uncomfortable conversations like Black anti Semitism? like Jewish anti-blackness and and all the other nuances you know at, uh, in the gray area between those things do you think there's any engagement of those things considering the level of of trauma that 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 people are dealing with do you think there just needs to be more healing time we need to get further in the future further away from the holocaust further away from antebellum slavery before we can have the conversation or
1: or what? What, what, are, what are your thoughts on this very
0: nuanced sort of thing? Um,
1: no, I stay out of it usually because I, I don't know the nuances. And in fact, I've been learning them over these last few weeks when the whole Kanye thing come up, mm-hmm. because I was unaware of a lot of these issues. So uh, I, I don't know if getting away from the Holocaust or slavery is it. Because getting away from it tends to make me think of of a forgetting mm. or a mm. or a putting to bed, a let it be mm. sort of a thing. And I don't think that we need to walk away from either one. Yeah. And you know, uh, yeah, I, just, I I just feel so reluctant. I I do a lot of listening in this arena. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I just don't under, understand all the ins and outs, like someone like you might.
0: Maybe about a year ago, maybe longer. Um, here on Triloquy, I, I talked to, I had some guests. Uh, shout out to Allison Loggins Hull. Uh, we talked about the International Contemporary Ensemble's Reparations Now. Concert, you know, where they talk about the impact of Jewish reparations on Jewish communities—that positive impact, the impact of a lack of reparations for Black people, and how uh, generational poverty is directly tied to that, and every other systemic issue that you can get into. That so the conversation is happening, and it's even happening uh, on a musical level. I was, um, I was talking to a composer not too long ago, um, and they were talking. About how, when they were kids, uh, when when they were a kid growing up in in New York City, there were like elementary school uh, sort of programs about uh, Black Jewish relations and building communities. So, this is a, a generations long conversation that's been happening. I think at the end of the day, understanding each other through dialogue is the key. To progress, you know, I asked. I know I asked if we just need to get further away from slavery, but at the end of the day, I think one of the major bits of pain and trauma for people is that lack of of reparations to Black people, and it's hard for so many of us. And I, I'll, I'll put myself in that. It's hard for me to not think about that and to not think about the anti Blackness inherent in the lack of acknowledgement of that. Trauma, you know, by by the country that perpetuated that trauma. There are so many historical things that you know are are placed appropriately, so on the type of pedestal, so that we don't forget, so that we don't repeat history. There's a lot of of trauma out there for those of us who are the recipients of 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 an unacknowledgement, a, an un, a, at least a real significant acknowledgment of of that history. So again, I, you know, at the bottom of my spirit just apologize for any hurt that liking a tweet that from my perspective lifted up a black perspective denigrated someone else or another group that was not my intent. I hope that we can work harder to have dialogue to see each other because as so many people say, hurt people Hurt people, and I don't think um, you know trying to destroy my character or deplatform me or invalidate the work that I do benefits anything. It doesn't benefit me, and it certainly doesn't benefit um, any individual or any community that is hurt by certain statements or the way that dialogues are are happening these days. I really you know, believe that we have to move forward together. The deeper I lean into my Buddhist practice, the more I see the need for unity across communities. And I just hope that we can all make that goal. Even if I am being, you know, as consistent and challenging um, myself as as I can. I think about the Donald Trumps. I think about the David Dukes. There's I'm forgetting his name right now, but there's a black blues musician who famously made friends with members of the Ku Klux Klan through through dialogue and 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 doing all of that. There was a time in my life when I first learned about that story. I was like, no, never me. I I, I could never. But now being on the other side of of some You know, what at the end of the day is a misunderstanding. I'm trying to consider what it looks like for me to offer grace, to try to see the human and try to meet person to person when it comes to certain things so that everyone can benefit and everyone can be better. Of course, there are, you know, some very real things happening in the world right now when it comes to anti Semitism, when it comes to anti Blackness, when it comes to. Uh, misogyny, you know, the, these, these things are, uh, anti, um, uh, immigrant rights and all of, all of those things. The issues are real. Um, and, and I'm, and I want to acknowledge that. I also want to acknowledge that because of the hurt and trauma and pain that comes from those very, uh, real subjugations of, of historically marginalized people, it's very easy for things to get misconstrued and to be, um, contextualize in a way that was not intended so anyway all of my long way to say I hope we can continue dialogue as people I hope we can find opportunities to uh to get clarity to really understand what intention is to be responsible for impact because that's that's important as well again impact over um intention um and for us all to just get along I know that's woo-woo and I know that seems just out of reach for a lot of people, especially again, we're here in this midterm season. I don't even want to think about uh, twenty uh, November 2023, when we're talking about Mm-mm. presidential elections. I think that's when the vitriol and the division really comes out. But if we can you know, somehow think about how to turn that trauma into learning, how to turn that poison into medicine, we may be able to reach mutual benefit. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate your continued support. We'll see you again next week.